Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Hello, hello. We are back this week with uh, this latest episode of Calcio e Cappuccino. Uh, Just so everyone knows, we are now a podcast available wherever you get your podcasts, Apple, Spotify, hit it, subscribe, follow along, set your alerts. We're back this week. Um, As always, Christine Cupo with Dre Cordero, Aaron West, and the absolute Ferrari of the Serie A team, um, Mike Grella. Um, Hey, Dre, how are you? I'm great, but uh, Grilla made his uh, Champions League television debut this week, and I just want to know how that went when he uh, joined them, uh, those boys in studio, uh, remotely, but but joining uh, the crew in London. Uh, I thought he did great. It was, ama- it was amazing. It was amazing. Thanks, Christina. Thanks. Um, listen, uh, I was nervous. I'm not going to lie. I was a little nervous. <laughs> uh, you know, some big players, some big players that are irre- they thought they were irreplaceable. <laughs> but they were replaceable. Um, no, but it, it was it was amazing. I had a good time, and and uh, it was it was exciting to be on there. For context, uh, it was it was the one and only Agrelladino who replaced uh, one Thierry Henry with the New York Red Bulls, uh, and then went on to win the Supporter Shield. If I'm not mistaken, is that right? Yeah, Supporter Shield, uh, and and. Um, I think I think at one point favorites to go on and win it. We just bottled it against Columbus Crew uh, away you, from home. You could have left uh, that part out. You have to say all that. <laughs> uh, I, I tell it how it is, man. But uh, no, it was it was a good it was a really good team, really good run. Speaking of bottling it, that's a good place to start with uh, our Champions League coverage. Because uh, first up, Aaron Juve, uh, 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 you think they hit rock bottom and then they show you another side of them. You on the podcast last week, I don't remember uh, if you said they could lose or if you said they would lose to, to Haifa. But it snaps a nine-game losing streak from Maccabi Haifa, who put two past Juventus. They lose Angel Di Maria as well. Um, Juve lose to a team that had scored a combined a total of two goals in nine Champions League matches and were 2-0 up against the old lady at halftime. We we don't want to just continue to moan about Juventus, but it, it's, it doesn't look any less bleak today than it did a week ago. It doesn't look good. <laughs> we can stop there. It, it sure doesn't look good. Yeah, I don't, I'm not going to sit here and lie and say, I, I remember last week that I, I said that there was a strong chance. I don't remember if I said they would lose, but I, I I do remember saying I wouldn't be surprised in the slightest that they lost to Haifa, and I am not surprised in the slightest. Going into that atmosphere with those players who were so, so pumped up, you could see it. You could see it in their eyes. You could see the lack of, of motivation in the Juventus players' eyes. There was absolutely no fire. Their body language from the first minute, it just looked... It was dire. Everything looks bad over there. Like it, it, it just from the outside, it it looks like a team that is dead inside, <laughs> like all the way around. Um, 
There's injuries. They have no identity. Uh, the players that are there look like they don't want to be there. The players that are on the bench look happy that they're they're not playing. <laughs> the manager looks like, hey, man, I'm going to get paid either way. So it, it just looks like an awful situation. Uh, we had the whole debate like, hey, um, if, if Juve aren't going to make Champions League, I know they're paying Allegri this much. Is it worth it just to, to sack him and at least try to get that money back? And Maybe it was. <laughs> it was. It's a little late now, but uh, hindsight is, I don't even think it's 2020 at Ju- Juventus at this point. They don't know how to look backwards and, and learn from their mistakes. So it's just like they're looking back with broken contacts and no one's fixing those eyes. So I don't know what the way forward is, honestly. I think, granted, I didn't have the highest of hopes um, with Maccabi Haifa. I honestly was surprised they had won the first part of that uh, leg. But uh, I think it says a lot when uh, the second you are playing Rugani in a Champions League match uh, in terms of options and decision-making, um, obviously not, not the greatest, and the result reflected it. I, I think that they're ultimately reaping what they've sowed um, season over season, not making corrections that needed to happen. There was a, um, a headline, and I forget where I read it, that just said... Uh... Support for Allegri dwindling in the Juventus locker room. And that to me, it was like, okay, well, I mean, now uh, we saw, you know, after <laughs> a game, Di Maria um, asking Arik Milik, why did he take you out? And Milik um, saying, I, I, you know, I don't know. And so that support seemed to be, at least from the access that we have, which is very little to what's going on behind the scenes, like that was pretty telling. And so like, Grilla, is it as simple? Because obviously the, the, the easiest thing, the thing that everybody calls for is for the manager's head to roll. And granted, this is... Juve's worst start, I believe, since their return from City of B. So it's not great. But is it as simple as just give me the other guy without even knowing who the other guy is, without even knowing what manager can come in to sort of fix this? Is there a deeper problem? Is it just about getting, you know, Federico Chiesa back healthy, Paul Pogba on the pitch? Or is it a culture issue? Like, what's your sort of diagnosis for the lows that we're seeing from Juve? I think, yeah, it's not just Allegri. But let's start with Allegri. For me, he has to go. Um, it doesn't matter the injuries, doesn't matter the club, uh, what situation they're in at the moment. At the end of the day, the, the, the players are not playing for him anymore. You can see that. So they play 15, 20 minutes. They look like their old selves. Anything goes against them, whether it's a goal, a, cat, a call, or any momentum shift in the game, the players just toss it in. They just don't want to play for them. You, you, like you just mentioned, players you know, talking after the game, why is he pulling you out? They're questioning his decisions. Obviously not happy. Um, and the results are not there. And, and so there's it's two things for me is the results. And the other thing for a coach is results, which at Juventus level, these results are unacceptable. But the second thing is the way they play football. Are they enjoying themselves? Are they playing good brand of football? Is this identity, this plan of what I likely has going in the right direction? And it's not. It's terrible. If you're a neutral fan, you want Juventus. You, it's enough to make you sick. Uh, but wasn't that deliberate? Wasn't that deliberate? It wasn't like the return to, you know, Allegri ball from, listen, the guy has, you know, six Scudetti, one with Milan and five with, with Juve. And granted, like, it's about having the right manager for the right club and the right locker room at the right moment. And Allegri does not look like that right now, right? He may have been the right manager once upon a time, but it's by design that they brought back a manager whose style isn't one that people are going to be enamored with, right? And so to that end, it probably goes, sure, Allegri has his share of the blame, but Andrea Agnelli wanted to bring his guy back brought his guy back they've spent since 2018 Juventus has spent some 455 million dollars on on player acquisitions they you know throw in the fact that the staff salaries have gone up by 90 million from what they were in 2018 that's 
over a billion dollars invested or over half a billion dollars invested in making the product on the pitch better, right? Forget the stuff outside and the business deals and whatnot, but to make the, the way that the team plays better, more successful, they invest over half a billion dollars and they look as bad as they have since they were playing in City of Beat. Yeah, and yeah, I, I think, think oh, go ahead, Gary. Sorry, Aaron, sorry. Uh, and I think with Allegri, though, it's because of the style is not the most uh, accepting, modern, beautiful style that there is to play. I think the results are even more important and he's not getting the results. And I know there's injuries, but they're only sitting one point away from Torino, one point away from Sassuolo, if I'm not if I'm not mistaken. So you can use injuries as a little bit of an excuse, maybe while you're not in the top two, top three. But at the end of the day, it gets old and you still have to perform better. I mean, you can't lose to Maccabi Haifa. But like you just mentioned, they, they've spent a lot of money and up up from the top down, it's not just the coach. They've made a lot of poor decisions on players, on staff. I mean, the reason why Allegri is, is still there is because there's this massive financial component in the deal with Allegri. I mean, they could say whatever they want, that he's their guy and this and that, but they just don't want to pay him out because they, they the contract's too long and it's too expensive. So at the end of the day, they've made very poor decisions from the top to the bottom, but the Allegri's, the, you got to start somewhere, and Allegri's a good start, I think. I understood why they brought Allegri back in terms of stability. And I think that that was his primary function, but I don't think that they were expecting to get uh, football that is quite as flavorless and joyless as they've actually gotten. Um, it's only one part of a larger problem. And uh, again, trying not to repeat history's mistakes at this point of having to pay out manager over manager where you're paying for sorry to sit on a sofa. You're also paying for Allegri still for portion of that. And then you end up with Pirlo in the driver's seat, which I don't think in hindsight was as big of an error um, as they could have possibly made. If anything, I probably would have given them more of a go, but um, they, they tried to swim back to shore and land with Allegri. We know he's very set in his ways. He's been playing the same style for quite some time. There wasn't going to be much to change, but when you have the players that you do, which on paper, Juve are good. It's disappointing to see that they can't rise above that, but they're very flat. Yeah. I, th I think Greller kind of hit on it in the beginning of his response. It, it is not a singular thing with Juve. Obviously, the face of, of the issue is Allegri, and he deserves a, his own fair share of the blame very, very clearly. But the thing, the rot goes deeper than that at Juve. Um, if you look at just their, like, if you take just their wage bill at all, alone and look at it, I think Bonetti tweeted this out a few days ago, like, compared to Milan's. There are so many players on astronomical wages at Juve that are not performing anywhere near that. And I know you can say, hey, a lot of those players were signed on free, but free transfers aren't free. <laughs> you have to pay those players. And they're getting the money is going out of your coffers one way or another, whether it's a transfer fee, whether it's agent fees, whether it's wages. And these guys, a lot of these guys are stuck at Juve on very, very high wages, and they're very, very comfortable and happy because they're getting paid a ton. They're getting treated well. They're in a very professional environment. They don't really get that much ass of them at this point in time. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead, Drake. Yeah, Juve, um, third bottom of their group. They're still ahead of Haifa on goal difference, uh, nine points behind Paris and Benfica. Uh, they still have to visit Lisbon to take on Benfica away from home, uh, and they host Paris Saint-Germain. So while they're not mathematically eliminated with two games left, it's kind of a foregone conclusion. It would take an absolute miracle um, for them to to advance as a second-place team. Um, but if it, if it is mental, or at least if there's a huge mental component to what is happening um, at Juventus right now, then a couple of things to factor in ahead of the Derby this Saturday, which is our, our feature match. Matteo Benetti and I will be on that on the call for that. We'll have studio uh, kicking off at 1130 a.m. Eastern with Grella, with Marco, with Poppy. Um, uh, Aaron, where are you? Are you with us this weekend? I, I should know this before I ask. I'm not with you this weekend. 
Get right, you. All right, I'm watching you like the rest of the world, and I'm going to enjoy it. All right, I'll, we'll have you on the WhatsApp, on the WhatsApp chat then uh, behind the scenes. Um, but so Allegri puts the team in what they call Retiro and retreat essentially from from the end of the last game. Uh, they're all going to be sort of together at the at the training center, working toward you know working through their psychological issues uh, toward this uh, Derby de la Mole Saturday against uh, Torino at the Olimpia Buena de Torino at noon kickoff. And so the two things that sort of if it is mental play into this is one the Retiro and two it's the one team in Serie A that you know Juventus would have sort of a psychological edge over. They have dominated that derby for a long long time. Um, it's been a, what 2015 I believe was the last time that uh, that Il Toro got a victory and yet I sense a nervousness among the Juventini that if Torino well, are going to nip one, it's this one. Even though it's a Torino side that have one win in the last four games, uh, you know, one point essentially from a possible 15, and yet it, it just seems like Juve are their at worst enemy and it doesn't matter who's in front of them. Well, I mean, let's level set expectations too, is that Juve haven't won an away match since April. So this does not bode well uh, if all things hold equal at this point, um, especially for this. I think that this would be... I know we keep reassessing like what the bottom is, like rock bottom, but I think it'll be a pretty bad loss um, if they end up uh, losing to Torino this weekend. Yeah, I think I think that's like the reason for the nervousness for so many Juventini. It's because we keep like crashing through the bottom of the floor. It's like, yeah, we hit it. Now we're going to move up. No, this floor <laughs> seems a little shaky. We catch an L to Torino after this many years. That would lit- That would be the rockiest of rock bottom. You would... Every every single fan, I, I think most fans are probably calling for Allegri's head right now. But if if Juve lose to Torino, there like if he walks out of there with his job, I think someone may throw a firebomb at the Juventus Stadium. I'm serious. It won't be me. Just yeah. clarifying. It won't be me. <laughs> it's like one of those, but one of those elevators. Anger. <laughs> like one of those elevators. We're like, why are there five floors below floor zero? Like, we, I, I don't understand. What what is B five? What does that lead? And that seems to be where where Juve are at the moment. <laughs> the sub basement. <laughs> <laughs> Gorilla, how do you see their, their match coming up against Torino? Because you you and I have talked about uh, Toro the last couple of seasons as a team, like Udinese, but maybe to a lower extent, have been better than their position on the table. Um, maybe more true of Torino last year than it is this year, because again, they've got one point in the last four. They lost uh, at Inter. They lost at home to Sassuolo. They got trounced by Napoli. That's a pretty rough schedule, though, right? And Empoli played some good football, and they held them to a draw. Uh, is this as close or as good as an opportunity as, as Torino have had against Juve? I think so, yeah. I mean, when you when you see what uh, Juventus have done, but for me, it's a psychological, psychological because uh, Juventus, their response, their response in the Milan game was was so poor. Um, they just rolled over and, and died. And some of the defending and and some of the attacking phases that mean they're not connect, they can't connect two or three passes um, against Maccabi Haifa. That was it was it was difficult to watch. And when you lose the locker room, I think. Those players have no more uh, no more motivation to put, to perform for Allegri. I think uh, I think he's totally lost the locker room. And Torino is a physical team. It's a team that closes spaces. They can hit on the counter. It's the best chance Torino will have against a Juventus that at the moment is. I mean, I grew up watching Juventus. It's the it's the worst I've seen them since I've been watching them. I'm 35 years old. It's it's the worst that I've seen them. You know, arguably you would say, oh, that well, when they went down to City AB, they didn't maybe maybe they didn't have the best team, but. This is even worse because I don't think they know exactly what the problem is. I don't think it's a matter of Allegri's gone and then they, they fix the problem or uh, they make a few easy decisions and they're back to where they want to be. I, I think there's a massive identity crisis. It could be something to do with how commercial they've gone in the last few years. You know, back in 
10, 15 years ago, you turn on FIFA, maybe a little longer than that, I guess time is flying. But 20 years ago, you turn on FIFA and nobody was picking Juventus and nobody really knew too much about them. They were a team that was just an underdog in the, in the Champions League and they'd be difficult to play against. Now it's like Juventus is one of the most well-known teams in the world and, and, and uh, it's changed sort of uh, their identity and their culture. You know, look at some of the players they're signing. They used to sign younger players that, that they would shine up and put into a good team, a good structure, good leadership and, and sell them on for millions of dollars. Now they're going out and buying these overpriced players, overpaying them, guys that are older. Look at Di Maria. I mean, they signed, uh, is he a great player? Fantastic, of course. But they signed him and now he's gone. He's gone until the World Cup. How many games has he played? What impact has he really had uh, at, at Juventus? So the signings, a lot of the decisions they made, I, I think they're they're lost right now. I think that's bang on. I think the glimmers of hope, though, for Juve right now are probably Miretti and Sule. They look good. They're the babies. But, you know, they need the time. I I would argue in in a semi-functional system that they're not getting, um, where I know we're constantly criticizing, like, Allegri for sending the youth away on loan. But I don't know if that would have benefited them more this season. Uh, It's it's rough to watch. Yeah, so, Christine, the... Uh, Sole, I watched him play the other day, and he, he Allegri watches him every day in training. He went, he the first play of the game that he, his first play of the game, he went by two players with ease, showed speed, showed energy, showed um, like what we like to call la grinta, like he really wanted to be there, really wanted to play. Those are the players that you have to play. I mean, for wash away the age, wash away the experience, wash. Away, look at the players in training, and look at the ones who are really fighting for you, and look at the ones who are just on vacation. And you got to play the guys that want to wear the shirt, the guys that want to play, the guys that want to fight, because those are the only guys going to get you out of, the, out of the situation in the short term. I agree with you. I think that's how you also restore a lot of that Juventinita that's missing, that we've lost with a little bit of the changing of the guard. It's it's a rough go, though. Aaron, but that's a bit, that's a bit of a... Um, what I'm looking for here. It's often the easiest thing for a manager to do when things aren't going well and, and sort of the, you know, the, the season's objectives sort of early on are gone, right? Like Juventus are not a Scudetto contender. The new objective is try and finish top four with a strong, you know, performance second half of the season. And sort of the, the cheat code that you could use is we'll play the kids because nobody will be mad at you for playing the kids, right? There's the youthful exuberance. They're hungry. They want to prove themselves. Um, but at the same time, like they don't necessarily give you the best chance to win in the big games. They just help alleviate some of the pressure from the manager because you're doing what the fans want. They want to see the youth and you then have the crutch of like, well, it didn't work out. Look, I'm playing with a bunch of 20 and 21-year-olds. So he's in a tough situation, Max Allegri, but I find it hard to believe that the solution over the course of the entire season is Miretti and Sule. I think that's more the emotional release for the fans is to see those guys and get a glimpse of the future. It doesn't fix the problem that Juve is facing in Serie A at the moment. Yeah, it, it is. It's one of those things where we they do need to play. Well, they they have a ton of potential, but this is there. There is no simple fix here. There, everything, <laughs> everything is. It goes back to I, I think identity for Juventus. Um, both Christine and Grella hit on it. it. It's it's identity. They they have gone from becoming being a club that was really all about like kind of humble hard work, and we're gonna kind of do this our own way. We're gonna like we're gonna play with mostly Italian players, local players. We're gonna bring them either through the academy, buy them cheap in Serie A, scout a little bit. But now the club's identity with the logo change, they want to be a more global entity. They want to sign players that people know. And that can be a little 
they, they, they don't necessarily go hand in hand when you're trying to build something and you don't actually have the budget to buy those big shiny players. What you end up is overpaying for players that people know on the face of it, but don't actually perform for you. And that's kind of the situation they're in here. They're in now. And going back to the, the playing youth thing, it's, it can often paper over cracks when it's like, Oh God, yeah, we got these super shiny young guys, but it can also be counterproductive because without any sort of system without like, Hey guys, this is how we play. This is what you're going to grow into. They're just running around. They're Mm -hmm. not becoming better players. They're just out there making mistakes without anyone to correct said mistakes. So it's just a really, really dark situation all around. And there doesn't really seem to be a bright exit point. (laughs) The the one point point I want to make is, is uh, like when I was a player or, or any of the players and and you guys uh, also have played at, at various levels and some very high levels and you understand the game. And when you go out and set out to do something, if you're, if your mentality is go and get the result, uh, it's difficult because you don't really have a system. You don't really know how you're going to get that result. If things go against you, it's it becomes a very difficult match and a difficult situation. I think they have unrealistic expectations because they have to go get the results and they're not getting them. But when you look at Napoli, when you look at Milan, when you look at uh, Lazio, they have a clear identity. Udinese is another one. Atalanta is mm-hmm. another one. They have a clear identity. And I can guarantee you that the coach is saying, this is the way we're going to play regardless of the results. This is our identity. This is our culture. This is what the club expects. These are the standards. Now, as a player, you go out there, you prepare, you go and do exactly what your coach asks you, and you play in the manner and the style and the identity of the club. Then the results will follow afterwards if you do what the coach asks. But when it's, hey, we don't have an identity, we don't have a style, your Juventus just go out and win. I mean, it becomes it becomes impossible because you don't have a script to lean back on and a, and a basics to fall back on. And you could see it. The team is totally broken the way they play football. I mean, Danilo has made so many runs up the right side. It's in, it's incredible. Rabiot looks lost. All, every every single player in the team looks totally uh, out of sorts and lost. For 10 minutes at a time, they look okay. And then after that, they, they're lost. I tried desperately to steer this in the, in the direction of Torino because there's another team in, uh, <laughs> in the Derby de la Bode playing this weekend. So I'm going to like take my shot again and just try and like just – jerk the steering wheel to the left to, to the home side because at least with this like I think this is something we could we could uh, agree on is that one of the most fun players to watch in all of Serie A this season has been Nikola Vlasic who is maybe stuck on a team that doesn't necessarily like play uh, to his style and to his abilities but there's a sense every time that he has the ball that he can make something happen and what I love about Serie A is that you know for all of the reputation of what the league has been over the years Today, it's, it's a league where a ton of playmakers, a ton of chances created. Vlasic is maybe one of the least talked about, yet more fun players that you'll be able to see in Serie A all season. Yeah, and we do have to give him his flowers. He's been really, really good for Torino this season. He's been a lot of fun to watch. He, he, he's one of those players that every time he steps on, you, you think something could happen. Um, Torino are not slouches in the slightest. Uh, this is going to be a legitimate Big, big problem for Juve. They have, for the like, if you're a Torino fan, if you're a Torino player, if you were anywhere in that camp, you have to feel this is your best chance in years to get a result. You have to feel that confidence. You can see the negative negativity from the other side of that city. You can feel it. Like, Juventini are terrified. <laughs> Juventus is in Retiro. Like, that is the, like, big blinking sign like hey we're in trouble so you have to feel like this is the time to go and get a result if you're if you're a Vlasic you're in good form you're confident you're playing against a defense that is all over the place 
so they have they have to believe that they can get a result, and I honestly think that there's a solid chance they will. I I admire your optimism, Aaron. <laughs> for Torino? No, for did you say Juve will get the result? No, 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 no. no I think result? Torino will, will get the oh, okay. result. I, yeah, I'm saying Juve, sounds, Juve right. is terrified. No, no, there's no optimism on the Bianconetto side over here. <laughs> I was like, wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah no, I, let's not get that misconstrued. It's all dark over there. That seems like a, a good place to, uh, for, for a brief pause with the lack of optimism. And then we're back with a ton of optimism because at Napoli, you're brilliant. So yeah, let's talk about good, Napoli good in the Champions League. <laughs> yeah, I figure, you know, there's a little bit of an awkward silence there uh, at the lack of enthusiasm. There is no team more enthusiastic at the moment, maybe in all of European football, than Napoli. And I hear the cynics when, when I tweet something nice about Napoli, I hear the, it's the same thing every year. They start strong, they'll fizzle away. I'm burned by the Maurizio Sarri years. And I think, like, it hurts me to, to, to hear that. So I think most people are enjoying what they're seeing, but I'm, I'm saddened that not everybody is enjoying it because there are no trophies given out in October. Uh, we don't, I don't care where Napoli end up. What I care about is enjoying the experience that Napoli are giving me right now, which is the most fun that you can have in front of a monitor watching soccer, I think, in any league right now is to watch gonna, Spalletti. Even, even Spalletti has started smiling in games, and that is a rarity. <laughs> I'm going to say it. Uh, if you are not feeling feelings from this Napoli squad, you're a hater. You're a hater. It's impossible. I don't care well, what anybody says. Here's the thing. I am a hater, but I feel feelings for this Napoli side. Thank like you. I strongly dislike Napoli. I have never had any love for the club, but I have to. you have to give praise where it's due. This team Look. is fantastic. Everything they're doing from the way that they play, the players they've signed, the depth in their team, the like pure positivity that they go about in every single match. They don't care if you score on them. They're they're gonna score four more than you. It does not matter. Uh, and and it's not like their defense is bad either. <laughs> they have a no, not at defense. all. They just are committed to playing such a positive style. It's wildly refreshing, and it's completely against the ideal that everyone still kind of for some reason holds for Serie A that it's like completely defensive. Um, Napoli are the they represent Serie A so well because that's what this league is like it's a it's very tactical yes but it is open people are scoring goals it, it, they're scoring beautiful goals and it's it's so much fun to watch right now on that side I'm glad so, I get to say something nice things today yeah. <laughs> you're gonna set up with more information as well right Napoli beat Ajax 4-2 we also had Lozano scored a beautiful goal combining with Zielinski uh, Raspadori looks like Italy's next great hope and it's more than a moment he's done it now basically from from the moment he got an opportunity uh, to play some regular football at Napoli. He's responded brilliantly. Uh, Cavada continues to do his thing. I could watch him dribble at players for 90 minutes. I don't even need the goals. They're sort of a, a little extra that you can have more fun with, with this Napoli side. And Victor Osimhen returns. Yeah, by the way, he's still there. Uh, <laughs> people forgot because they, they've just been rolling without him. Uh, and he looks so desperate to, to get a goal in. Does get it in the 89th minute. Napoli win uh, 4-2. They beat Ajax in both games handedly. Sort of hands in their pocket. Not a hair out of place. Uh, so they clinch. It's the first time they've ever won the first three group stage matches, let alone four, which is what they've done now. 17 goals is the most by any Italian club in the group stage of the Champions League. They still have two games left to play. You sort of run out of superlatives talking about this Napoli team. And so I don't care where they're going to finish. I don't care who they're going to crash out against. I want to enjoy what I'm seeing now because it is different from past good Napoli sides. It is different from the starts that we saw under Maurizio Sarri, where it was really good football 
and, and points. Now it's really good football points and absolute domination of the opposition. I think that's bang on though, Dre, is this team feels different because they are different. I don't think that they are going to follow historically the Napoli that crash out. They've got Moxie. They're all together gelling. Um, Goal scoring aside, obviously, like that's the fun part of the game is winning. Their movement is so sexy. They're passing. Um, they just, it's, it feels different. I don't know how else to, to sort of qualify that. Um, before Grella know, maybe, goes, maybe sorry. Grella can wax poetically or Aaron about this. Yeah, but yeah, it I just, just, before Grella uh, goes, I just want to say something really quickly about like the, one of the really, the coolest things for me watching Napoli this year is like we watched them figure out a plan B like in real time. Their main striker, Victor Osiman, went down and they were like, oh, shoot, what are we going to do now? Let's just toss in Graspadori. He'll figure it out. Um, the first match, he was not good. Um, it, it didn't look like it was going to fit. And then, they stuck with it. And then we saw Raspadori grow into the team. He kind of fit molded into that Dries Mertens role where he was dropping into midfield. The wingers were adapting to that change. They're cutting inside, filling in behind him. It's just a really fluid and adaptable team that's deep and play good football. And I'm sure Grella will expand on this more. But it was for me, it was amazing to watch them like have their that striker go down and then say, you know what, we're gonna still truck on, we're still gonna score fifty goals a game. It doesn't matter. Yeah, just to, to tell you where Napoli is, when you hear Jamie Carragher, who I, I didn't know he knew another team other than Liverpool, uh, and, the, and, the, and the Premier League, Premier League, Premier League every single day. He was day, forced to recognize Grillo. Fair. When he's on the panel talking about Napoli and how good they are, you know that Napoli are in a good in a good spot. Not only that he knows them, but also speaking, you know, saying very uh, nice things about them and how well they're playing. I also... Then the next point would be, listen, they had a hotter start next season. They did. I mean, that's just the reality of the situation. Uh, we haven't seen this team face any adversity yet. We haven't seen them lose. We haven't seen them, um, you know, go through a bad moment yet. And trust me, th- this is not going to be – they're not going to play champagne football the entire season. Yep. They're going to they're gonna start dropping points somewhere along the line. They're You know, that's just the nature of the situation. It's a long, difficult season. Uh, and so as they go through that, we'll start to learn a lot more about the character of the team, uh, that back line. Because uh, because Ajax, you know, they did cut through the back line quite easily yesterday. And, and uh, we'll, we'll start to learn more about them. So it's still early days. But, yes, they, they are a fantastic team. They're playing some of the best football you can see. And you would argue the last point between Raspadori and Osimen, you would argue that they they look totally different. They play two different ways when Osimen's in and two different ways in a different way when uh, Raspadori is in. And you would argue that they actually look more dangerous at times with Rasvatori because he's coming into that midfield, like Aaron says, and you get these wingers that are running behind, and it's it's just difficult to pick Rasvatori up because he's not he's playing uh, very much like a false nine compared to Oziman, who's a true nine. So it's uh, yeah. it's 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 incredible that they have that different look in, in in the attack. But again, long season, long way to go. I, you know, I, I I wish they go on and win the Scudetto. I really do, uh, but it's not going to be that easy. So part of the the desperation that that Osimhen seemed to have to to get on the score sheet, he got caught offside a couple of times, put the ball in the back of the net, had it disallowed. I think has a lot to do with you know seeing how how good the team has been and wanting to be a part of it, but also a lot to do with seeing not just one but two other strikers come in, fill in, and make everyone forget about Victor Osimhen because yes, Raspadori's been brilliant, but so too has Cholito Simeone when he's come in, and so I think it's that intra squad competition that that. 
Napoli seem to have at almost every position. You know, like Cavada's basically you know locked in, uh, and Dombele is a good sort of replacement to come into the midfield, especially now that um, Frank and Giza is suffering a little bit of an injury. The one area where they looked thin was at center back. And I think we see the difference when it's Juan Jesus who's in there as opposed to Rahmani, right? Like Juan Jesus is the third center back on this team. Rahmani and uh, Kim uh, Minje have been absolutely brilliant. Less so when Juan Jesus is in, he gave away a penalty. I think that's where you see some of the sort of defensive frailties of this Napoli team. But I agree with you, Grilla, in that this group, you know, High as the, the level is with Liverpool, with Ajax, you know, past European champions, teams with big names who play good football, they also play a little bit into Napoli's style. Because if you look at teams that traditionally, historically, that have played like Napoli, that can not just dominate possession, but also run up the score on you, right? The, the great Real Madrid teams, the great Barcelona teams in the Champions League, other teams will sort of sit back and defend against them. Other teams will, in order to not be embarrassed, take a much more defensive approach. Napoli won't do that. Excuse me, uh, Liverpool won't do that. Ajax won't do that. These are the biggest challenges that they had in the group stage. And there were teams that were trying to take the game to Napoli, which is a dangerous proposition. Yeah, I think yeah, no. it shows like a little bit of the lack of respect for Napoli. It, it kind of goes to the, the, the Jimmy Carragher side of things. A lot of these teams don't necessarily believe that there's real strength in other leagues. I think we've seen a, a, a little bit of complacency. Liverpool, especially this year, have been very, very complacent. I don't know if they even scout the teams they're playing. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I think we have to be we have to be like righteously cautious of of throwing every uh, it's I like I'm stuck between Grella and Dre right now like I want to enjoy this Napoli team so much for what they are but I also like have to look towards the future and see like are they do they do we think they're real you don't now, you don't have to that's a choice that's a choice you're making <laughs> no 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 this is how my brain works I it is not a choice <laughs> it's not a choice I don't get to choose Fair. how my brain works uh <laughs> so I I do think that they are set up to be good am i going to call them the scudetto winners right now i think they'll be challenging absolutely i think i don't think we can say anything about what any top four of any league will look like until we come out of this world cup <laughs> this is the yeah. weirdest year of, of football we have ever seen and i don't think it's going to get any less weird because money is ruining the game Sorry. That's my <laughs> that's my main argument. That's my main argument for living in the now, though, right? Is that it, that yeah, it's almost another season, another life, another campaign on the other side. side. But yeah. I have to think about the future. But th- for now, I'm having a great time watching this team. There's so I'm much. I'm choosing fun. joy. Yeah, I'm choosing joy right now. <laughs> I'm, choosing it, joy. I'm choosing peace. Like, I watch, choosing I watch joy. <laughs> and I smile, and I'm like, "What is this sensation? I'm so happy to watch them play." I mean, the only other team right now that's kind of giving me that vibe is actually Udinese, which. I didn't call that. That wasn't on my bingo card for this season. Um, there's a vibe about him. And, and by the way, we, we build up that um, Atalanta-Udinese game last week, and that was probably the most fun uh, 90 minutes of the entire round a week ago. Um, also in the Champions League. We didn't uh, call that wrong either because we talked so much yeah, about it. For it we not did. being like a big matchup, we were like, guys, you got to watch it. You got to watch it. You got to watch it. Don't <laughs> miss it. Don't miss it. And then it was actually good. So, hey, see. So. Same thing this week, and, and if we get a chance on the back end, we'll talk a bit about Atalanta against Sassuolo this week, which I also think would be appointment viewing. Uh, but first, uh, Milan-Chelsea was so promising. I got the opportunity to call that um, for Paramount Plus with, with with Ray Hudson. We were pumped for it. You know, it's it's a Milan side that wants to take the next step, the next level. They were coming off that buzz of, of handily beating Juventus at the weekend, um, and they lose Fikayo Tomori 18 minutes into a red card that has caused a bit of controversy that we can get into. Uh, 
Chelsea score. A lot of Chelsea links to Serie A, right? So Jorginho scores from the penalty spot, obviously, you know, former uh, Napoli and Verona. Um, Kalidou Koulibaly, another ex-Napoli. Uh, I just kept seeing uh, Mateo Kovacic, who was at Inter uh, before going to Real Madrid. There were so many players that had done, you know, fun, big things in Serie A. They're now part of that uh, Chelsea team. And maybe Rafael Leao, not, not post, but pre, because Chelsea have had some links uh, to Leao. He seemed to want to really audition uh, for, for the Blues. And at times, was... Mateo Benetti just twitched and he doesn't know well, what. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so he, he he kept trying to take on two three players which you know often in City A he'll get away with against Chelsea without his teammates he wasn't going to get it done um, Grill, I'm just curious what you thought of Milan who looked quite good for about 17 minutes and then were never in it after that I think with Milan they, when you're uh, when you have a team a lot of coaches talk about having uh, players that uh, players that can have a performance of a 2 or a 10 out of 10 right a 2 out of 10 or a 10 out of 10 and with Milan, you have too many young guys still. They're, they're great, talented, energetic players, physically gifted players, a lot of them, uh, speed and strength. But a lot of players that are still young and in the big moments, you don't know if they're going to give you a 2 or a 10. And they don't have enough guys that are leaders that are going to give you that constant 7, week in and week out. And, and I think sometimes they get the balance of that wrong. Uh, and the other big point I want to make that in, in the Serie A, Milan are one of the youngest teams. And they physically press team. They physically dominate teams with their speed and their strength by pressing the game and pushing the game. They are so aggressive when they go play against the Premier League teams that are just as physically gifted as them. You can see they lose that advantage. They they lose that advantage in a big way. And besides Liao and Teo, who are superstars, the rest of the team, uh, again, you don't know if you're getting a two or a ten. Uh, and, and Tamori, we could talk about the penalty all day, but he's in the wrong position. He's a little yeah. lazy, falls asleep for a split second, gets himself in a poor position. So, yeah, I, I don't think it's a penalty. I don't think it's a right card. I agree with all that. It looks worse than slow motion. But for Tamori, he got himself in the wrong position there, and he got himself in the wrong position in Stamford Bridge when he was on the near post and kind of just uh, kind of flailed at it. So, so um, there's that. Young, young guys that are extremely talented, but you just don't know if you're going to get it week in and week out. Props yeah. to Mason Mount, by the way, who, who was the one who got in behind Tamori. He uh, prompted the, the penalty, the red card. He then had the assist on the 2-0. Mason Mount was, from the, from the first touch in that game, looked like a man who was inspired and did whatever he wanted against Milan, even when it was 11 against 11. Yeah, I think Milan, even last year, was a team that kind of performed greater than the sum of their parts. They had some superstar performances throughout that year, Teo, Leao in particular. But they're, like, glaring weaknesses in that team and we've seen it we've called them out they last year probably overperformed a bit inter may have been better over the strength of the season they may have been a better team but but they kept getting the results this year they're up against they're in champions league and every single weakness you have is exposed in champions league and we can see that they bonetti said it even even Without the injuries, a full-strength Milan is probably not as good as this Chelsea team. And especially with the injuries that they've had, the interruptions they've had, it was it was a tough ask. And, I mean, Grella hit on it. This team is so, so young. This is one of those things where, uh, if you're purely, the only thing you can do is say, this is a learning experience. Uh, you guys, you, you went under the bright lights. You might not have done your best, but this is one of those things where you learn from, you take from, you grow from it. Uh, you never want to have that type of performance again, but you put that in the past and move forward and then just take those experiences to Serie A and hopefully stay continuing in the competition. But I don't think anyone's really surprised 
with Milan and, and how they performed. Um, I don't think anyone's really disappointed, to be honest, because of how young this team is, the injuries and everything. Uh, I just think it's one of those, it's a growth point. And if Milan can continue to do the right things, sell some players, hold on to the players that they need to, like that's the hardest thing in world football. Yeah, just it's easy. So sell the players that need to be sold and keep the ones that need to be kept. Um, but no, I, I think they have a strong platform to build on. And I don't really, I don't know if anyone was worrying about Milan, but I don't think there's anything to worry about with that specifically. No, I think I have them definitely uh, beating Dinamo Zagreb uh, in a couple week in a couple weeks. Yeah, on the twenty fifth. Um, I I think that they're still very much in it. I still have all the faith in the world um, with Napoli and Champions League and with Inter's performance against Barca. Um, I think they'll they'll be just fine. Uh, I don't know who will rise to the top. I still say Napoli are the strongest in Champions League for Serie A representation, but who knows? It's it's complete silly season when it comes to Champions League. So, so yes, Milan are a young side, but even the veterans on this team sort of let them down uh, against Chelsea because uh, immediately after the red card and the penalty, very next big chance of the match is moments later as Olivier Giroud has an open header, usually puts those away in his sleep and instead sends it well wide, doesn't even come close uh, to testing um, Kepa in goal. So it wasn't just sort of young players not coming, not stepping up to the moment. Um, I thought even someone like a Giroud, some of those players would have been. Giroud was Chelsea's top scorer when they won the Champions League in 2021. Um, um, and this was a chance against his old club to, to really shine, to put the team in it, um, to, to raise some doubt in Chelsea. And he let that go. That said, Milan, third place, uh, three points behind Chelsea, uh, two points behind um, RB Salzburg. They still do control their own destiny. So still an opportunity for Milan to get through. I'm not going to ask for predictions. We'll have a chance to talk about them going into the final uh, game, maybe in a couple of weeks. Um, so let's go ahead to Inter, who had never uh, gotten a result outside of San Siro against Barcelona, five previous visits, all five were losses, even though they advanced um, when they met in that 2011 semifinal or 2010 semifinal and route to the treble. This time, this was arguably the best game of this Champions League's match day four, uh, back and forth, some gifts from Barcelona, but Inter, I thought, showed a lot of character, a lot of personality. And for all of the questions that we had about Inzaghi two weeks ago and all of the questions we have about whether Juve are still playing for Allegri. There is no question this Inter team still believes in people in, in Zaghi and what they're doing. And Simone, I yeah, think. They, uh, go, ahead, go ahead, sorry, go ahead. Aaron. Sorry, I I think um, Inter don't get to play in a lot of games like that, uh, where teams want to go and attack them, and they can sit in their shell and counterattack, uh, and in in those open games. And I think when they do play in those open games against big teams. They have enough to defend because they play with five at the back. They have these fantastic central defenders uh, and very good wing backs. So they have enough to defend big teams. Uh, and I think I think then they have the, the ability to hurt you on the counter. They were very good in the counter yesterday. That game was like watching like when I go play uh, up at the school now and we're all old men now. We're you know, 35, 35 to 45 and nobody wants to defend and the game just gets totally stretched. That's what that game looked like yesterday, but it made for an unbelievable, entertaining second half. Uh, and there was a lot of moments where I think Inter probably should have came away with the win in that game. But when the game is open and end-to-end, Inter, uh, Inter looked very good. And, and it's nice to see that they can play in that way as well. Yeah, when, when the game gets stretched like that, it's when Nicolo Barella really shines, I think, because he is so active. He was fantastic yesterday, getting from box to box. I, and we have to give Chalonoglu and Mkhitaryan credit as well. They were wonderful in midfield, just the energy that they showed. Uh, and then, 
Robin Gosens, he's alive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Robin Gosens is alive. We talked all season. Like in the beginning of the season, I feel like we were all like, yeah, Inter will be fine with losing Pedisic because they've got Gosens to slot right in. And then we just never saw him. I don't know if there was an issue between he and Inzaghi, whether there were fitness issues, what. I have no idea what it was. I'm not inside the locker room. I wasn't following the internews that closely. So maybe somebody else knows. I don't personally know. All I know is Gozens did. He was the Gozens that we know. He was the Gozens of Atalanta in that match. Atalanta. He was fantastic. I think hopefully for him, this is one of those where it's like, hey, guys, I proved myself. Can I get some more PT? Can I uh, see yeah. a pitch? <laughs> so, I mean, I think they were great overall. I, I think they could have possibly gotten a result out of that i think they showed so much positivity like yes they played with very organized fashion they did not like get too too stretched but they played very openly they they played they they went and attacked lautaro was really really good overall i think um it was just a fun match to watch and it, it was i was a little bit surprised with the positivity i saw from Inter. The the feeling for me is similar to the the reverse fixture in San Siro is that the player, the individual out of Inter who comes out looking the best is Hakan Chalanodum, who looks like an indispensable part of the midfield now, no matter which of those midfield positions you have him in, right? Because the, the prevailing thought with Inter is that Marcelo Brozovic is by far their most important player, that their style changes when Brozo is in. And I think that's true because Brozo, for me, fills the role of two players at Inter, right? He becomes a sort of a fourth center back when they have to defend, and that makes it easier for a Bastoni to go flying forward, for a Strenyard to play in the opposition's half, for, for Inter to take up higher positions on the pitch when Brozovic is in there, but he's also their conductor, the guy who can set the tempo for them. And I think out of Henda, out of um, Hakan, you get that second element, right? You get that that director, that orchestrator in the midfield from that deep line playmaker position in a way um, that other players on the squad can't, but he's not going to become that sort of fourth defender. So something changes, whether it's Darmian in there and he stays a little bit further back, or whether it's Barella dropping in to become that, that additional defender, which is not his best role necessarily. So you almost have to have two players serve the function of one Marcelo Brozovic. But you don't really, we didn't really miss Brozovic that much for this Inter team over the course of both legs against Barcelona. I don't know if that says more about Barca than it does Inter, but the reason we didn't miss him was because, because Hakan was absolutely brilliant for them. Yeah, I, I think tactically, one of the reasons specifically against Barcelona they didn't look to miss him that much is because they play with a straight three up front and they don't really have anyone sitting in midfield. They play with like a, a, a kind of a, a reverse diamond or I guess you'd call it a diamond base in midfield, two, two eight. A reverse, a reverse yeah. diamond is still a diamond, my man. Yeah, yeah, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a long you day. You know what already. I meant. You know what I meant. <laughs> but there's no one really like sitting on that 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 midfielder that sits in front of their back three, which for for when, when Brozovic is out, it's Barella. So he doesn't necessarily have to drop in into the back line. They've got three defenders to handle one Lewandowski and then outside backs to handle their wingers. So he gets to kind of run. He gets to do his thing. He gets to – tactically, he's not going to be too, too exposed as long as Mkhitaryan and, and Chalonoglu don't just go sprinting off. So he got to kind of do – be who Barella is best is a little bit of everything. And I think it, it was it, – it just was fun to watch. When Barella is, is at his best, he's one of the most fun players in world football just because he's everywhere. He Like, you can imagine how – annoying it would be to play against him i think you come off the pitch just like 
who was that tiny little dude who every time I touched the ball was near me? Every time I played the long ball, he was on the end of that one. What is going on? Why is this dude everywhere? I'm, I'm sick of this. Um, and he was that player. We saw it in the Euros for Italy. We saw it when Inter are really at their best. So I, I, for some reason, I don't know why I keep honing in on Barella, but he was the big, big key for me, and I just love watching him play. So Inter in second place, you're five points behind the leaders, Bayern at the moment. Bayern already clinched. Uh, there are three points clear of Barca, and they had the head-to-head tiebreaker over Barca, which is absolutely massive. Uh, they hosted already eliminated Victoria Pilsen uh, next up. Then they'll visit Bayern. If they beat uh, Pilsen with a win against Victoria Pilsen, Inter are in. Um, and again, done. Yeah. For, for, for a team that was heavily criticized for a project that was heavily questioned under Inzaghi, they look good enough um, in a very, very difficult group in the uh, Champions League. We did 45 minutes plus stoppage time. That's probably a good place to leave <laughs> at this time. So we'll see you again next week. Our, our coverage this weekend, Saturday, October 15th. Uh, it centers on the Derby della Mole between Torino and Juventus. We're on air at 11.30 a.m. Eastern on Paramount Plus pregame to the Derby. Studio coverage also around Atalanta Sassuolo, which kicks off at 2.45. So for Mike Grella, for Aaron West, for Christine Cupo, I'm Drake Cordero. We'll do this again next week on Thursday. Ciao, ciao.